أعوذ بالله السميع العليم من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم اللهم صل على سيدنا محمد المصطفى النبي لما يطيب طاهر زكي صلاة تنحل به عقد وتنفرج في الكرب على الإبساب الشبين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد المصطفى النبي لما يطيب طاهر زكي صلاة تنحل به عقد وتنفرج في الكرب على الإبساب الشبين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على سيدنا محمد المصطفى النبي لما يطيب طاهر زكي صلاة تنحل به عقد وتنفرج في الكرب على الإبساب الشبين اللهم صل وسلم بأنواع كمالاتك في جميع تجلياتك على سيدنا ومولانا محمد أول الأنوار الفائضة من بحور عظمة الذات المتحقق في عالمي البطون والظهور بمعنى الأسماء والصفات فهو أول حامد ومتعبد بأنواع العبادات والقربات والممد في عالم الأرواح والأشباح لجمع المجدودات وعلى آله وأصحابه صلاة تكشف لنا النقاب عن وجه الكريم في المرأة والأقضات وتعرفنا بك وبه في جمع المرأة والحضرات ولطفنا مولانا بجاه في الحركات والسكنة والأخضات والخضرات ولطفنا مولانا بجاه في الحركات والسكنة والأخضات والخضرات ولطفنا مولانا بجاهه في الحركات والسكنة والأخضات والخضرات حضر بك بلعزت يا ما يزفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين سيدي would you mind reading today Sidi Niaz's internet looks like it's having a bit of trouble. Do you mind coming and sitting sure. here? Oh. Sorry, it keeps on telling me, Sidi, that your um, bandwidth is low and then you keep on freezing a lot. So I thought maybe we'd just okay. get someone to read live here today, if that's right. Uh, did that happen last week as well? Uh, no, not really. Okay. Well, Let me just uh, adjust something and I'll... Okay. I'll well, maybe if, if it, if it gets second. fixed, maybe we'll, we'll just uh, uh, go back to you later on if you're fine with that. Did you put a line where we got to? Um, I did, I, but I I'm not sure if it's right. Um, yes. I did. Where did you put it? Although amongst come. Oh, that's exactly where it is. Yeah, wonderful. Although amongst Kant exegetes past and present, there is wide agreement that these considerations constitute genuine challenges to the consistency of Kant's overall project. Approaches to the question of whether these are ultimately fatal to his project differ widely, as we will see. Although earlier metacritics of Kant's philosophy, such as Johann Georg Hamann, Ernst Plattner, and Hegel tend to view as flatly contradictory Kant's demand that the instrument of human cognition be examined, while Kant in all the, all the while uncritically employs the same instrument in order to reach his own critical conclusions, more recent commentators such as W.H. Walsh, Lewis Whitebeck, and Nicholas Rescher attempt to defend Kant in various ways. We will look at their views somewhat more closely, especially those of Beck in our final section and argue that such defenses constitute in essence mere capitulations to key assumptions of the philosophical modernity of which Kant himself was the primary progenitor, but ironically represent inter interpretations of Kant which <clears throat> it is scarcely contestable he would himself have rejected in the strongest terms. Chapter 1.2, The Critical Turn, uh, Letter of 1772, and Kant's Uncritical Assumptions in the Critique of Pure Reason. 
in the revered halls of modern philosophy's pantheon of superlative books, Kant's critique of pure reason has been accorded an utterly disproportionate expanse of floor space, enjoying more secondary literature scrutiny than perhaps any other work therein, with the minutia, seemingly, of every possible aspect of his thought in that work endlessly perlustrated and dissected. Indeed, one of the only exceptions appears to be our very question, to wit that of whether, whether Kant's project in the CPR is even possible at all. Adequitious students of the philosophical sciences craving the dramatic encounter with Kant's Copernican revolution are thus spoilt and overwhelmed by the vast libraries of introductory guides and detailed commentaries on the CPR, as well as monographs on every aspect of his thought. It is for this reason we make no attempt here to provide an introduction to Kant's thought in the CPR. Rather, in this section, we will merely intend to briefly refresh, refresh our memories concerning Kant's primary aspirations for his philosophy and what it is that he believes he has achieved. Before that, however, for the sake of further for the sake of the further light that sheds on those aspirations, we will observe the unfolding of an important episode from the period of formation, prior to the fully-fledged critical turn away from traditional metaphysics. This is the penning of a pivotal letter of 1772 that Kant addressed to Marcus Hertz, one of his most devoted students, and which for many marks no less, for many marks no less than the, than the point of no return for Kant's intellectual journey into that famously inverted reality, so idiosyncratically his own, but that is nonetheless everywhere familiar today, at least to the keen-sighted keen of the children of modernity. In formulating the key metaphysical and epistemological tension that would motivate Kant to stretch himself away to write the CPR, and which he first gives voice to in this letter, Kant is motivated by his certainty, despite having his, his having earlier entertained the possibility of unity, that reality is fundamentally dual, that it is not one. He then constructs his philosophy to try to show that as the direct consequence of this feature of reality, it is impossible to know reality. It is possible that the self-evident logical impracticability, impracticability, to say the least, of this quick subject. Sorry, I've memorized the book. Uh, to say the least, of this quixotic enlightenment adventure, may have entirely may have been entirely lost on even so acute a mind as Kant, or he may be, on the other hand, have pursued it, or he may have on or he may, on the other hand, have pursued it, regardless of the incalculable cost to good sense that it entails. Precisely because he Page fourteen. Precisely because he considered the abolishment of metaphysics, which it implies, to represent the epitomic, ep epitomic enlightenment project. Yeah. What is certain, as we will see in some more detail in section 2.1, is that dualisms, like the sharp distinctions between appearance and things in themselves, sensibility and understanding, and concept and intuition, were viewed by many prominent post-Kantian thinkers in the immediate aftermath of the critique as egregiously insupportable and indeed hopeless bifurcations of reality, which failed to specify the common principles, the principles of unity to use platonic language, that could explain how the dual elements were able to interact at all. Yet Kant's di uh, dichotomous bent stems from this deeper presumption that guides the unfolding of his entire philosophical project including underpinning his decisive distinction between intuition and concept, and that could not help but rigorously predetermine his vision for what the Copernican revolution, which he felt philosophy so badly needed, would have to look like when it took shape. This is his odd assumption that knowing and being, 
although he carefully although he carefully avoids the latter term where at all possible, must be intrinsically shut off from one another, foreign and disconnected, indeed so despairingly alien to one another that the ground for the possible relation between the two can scarcely be conceived. He's just come from giving a, a big lecture. I never imagined in a million years that you'd be able to make it. Mashallah, you have incredible himma. I was driving someone around who was watching your, uh, your lecture. This is the himma to watch lectures. No, I wasn't, I wasn't watching it while driving. It was the other person. That would be dangerous. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I think they all know their health and safety here. Um, lovely to see you. So uh, it's important in trying to understand Kant to go back to his intellectual development because he didn't come out of a vacuum. In the case of Kant particularly, it's extremely interesting because there's an also awful lot of intellectual development. Actually, this whole avenue was opened up to me by a friend of mine, Mustafa Aziz, who's at Harvard, who suggested that I go to a particular this particular letter in order to frame the argument because he saw an early draft of this. So I'm I'm forever grateful to him because it opened up some very very interesting perspectives, and. Um, it's particularly interesting in the case of Kant because he basically turned himself inside out in the course of, of uh, his, his philosophical development. He essentially went from a position in his inaugural dissertation, which is basically his, his doctora, uh, which was fundamentally Platonist, to, it's not quite his doctora, in fact, because it was, I suppose, it's more like his, what's it called, habitation, that the Germans have? Habilitation, yeah. Yeah, not habitation. That's for squirrels. Uh, but um, uh, essentially, um, in his inaugural dissertation, he went from something which was basically a platonic position. It's not an adequate platonic position, but it's been widely characterized in the literature as a, as a fundamentally platonic position. That's in a way what makes Kant so interesting that he does kind of, it's possible to say that he understands the philosophical Masail on a much deeper level, certainly than his latter day followers. I'd say his proximate followers, but if you're talking about Schelling and, and Fichte and Hegel, understood philosophy remarkably well. Um, and uh, especially Hegel went to great lengths to study the history of philosophy very carefully. Um, but as we've often noted, you know, in the latter day, quite a historical context of modern philosophy, uh, there's, it's, 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 possible to find people who make even more startling claims, if that's possible, than Kant does, but with much, much less to back it up. But in any case, 
this letter, it is something that I, I, uh, I, I underlined when I was going through his correspondence, but I think most of us, he's very much for drawing my attention to its real importance because it is actually absolutely pivotal. <clears throat> so he is motivated by his certainty that reality is fundamentally dual, that it is not one. When he is shutting himself away to write the CPR. Now, this would occupy, as it says in note 12, the next nine years of his life after um, the um, letter. Then the letter to Hertz, he predicts that the work would be finished within three months. This suggests that while the letter was an important catalyst in the formulation of the central problematic of the CPR, it does not itself represent the critical term. And so there's a kind of there's a kind of controversy in the literature about whether this represents the critical turn itself or it's just a prelude to that, but we'll, we will discuss that more. So Kant has previously entertained the possibility, the possibility of unity. Now that's again what makes his philosophy so dangerous in a way is that when he criticizes traditional metaphysics as and, and, and the faculty of reason as incorrigibly prone to seek after the unconditioned, he is kind of trying to get to the heart of, I mean, he is fairly successfully getting to the heart of what traditional metaphysics is all about. The danger with that is if you don't understand how traditional metaphysics really works, you think, oh gosh, look at this remarkable sophistication of this man who's, you know, one of the most important patriarchs of modern philosophy. And, and, and he understands that Platonic philosophy, for example, is seeking after ultimate principles of unity. It's a lot better than most modern polemicists uh, against traditional philosophy who don't even bother to tell you what it's about. They just, they just, um, they just, presume an awful lot. It doesn't make Kant's critique any writer, it's actually completely wrong. Um, but I'm just saying it gives a, a kind of plausibility, rhetorical plausibility to his project, the fact that he has been able to identify quite a nuanced understanding of what is really going on with traditional metaphysics, because traditional metaphysics really is, to a large degree, trying to find the principles of unity of all things, as in the causal principles of unity, which really can, can explain not only the knowability, the intelligibility of the thing, but also the being of the thing in question, and seeking ultimately the ultimate unconditioned. What's the word for unconditioned in, in Arabic? Mutlaq. It's always trying to seek the mutlaq, essentially until it finds the ultimate mutlaq, which is the one, right? Which is Allah Ta'ala. So, this is all quite 
self-explanatory. I think we should get down to the nitty-gritty. But fundamentally, I think we can start with what it says at the bottom of number 14, that he is motivated in many of his dualisms by, and this is what's really characteristic of Kant, is, is the highly dualistic nature of his philosophy. He is motivated, many of his dualisms, by his odd assumption that knowing and being are intrinsically shut off from one another and so despairingly alien to one another, the ground for the possible relation is, but he's about to tell us himself, between the two can scarcely be conceived. So this comes down to what has become subsequently a fundamental modern problem, which you will find modern people like us endlessly repeating, or rather it's something you don't have to, you don't have to justify uh, or explain or argue for to the modern person because they already intuitively accept your premise, which is the idea that there is fundamentally some great mystery in how it is that we as knowing subjects, right, can move around in the world described by science, which is, that's the only way, way to really describe it from that from that modern outlook. In this world described by modern science, you know, us biological beings who have this epiphenomenon of, of, uh, uh, of intelligence and of cognition, how on earth is it that the way that we represent the world corresponds to how the world really is in itself? And it's, uh, yani, that, that's a great mystery. Most people resolve the mystery by saying, well, it's not so much that we represent the world as it is. At best, they might say, and perhaps the best of them, they might say, well, perhaps we represent the world well enough. You know, evolution has, has adapted us to the world in such a manner that we, we understand it well enough to get by, right? Now, that sounds like a better position. It's actually the, the most spineless position of them all because it doesn't make sense on its own terms in the slightest. Um, the other position would be that, well, no, we simply have no, no knowledge of, the, of what things really are. Then one might say, well, why is it that intersubjectively, I can speak to you all, you can all speak to me, we understand what we're saying, and we also mutually recognize the objects around us. How is that possible? Well, that person would say, well, that's just because we possess the same cognitive apparatuses, and imminently, the world gives the impression of being ordered because of that. And that is directly the Kantian position. Imminently, the world gives the impression of being rationally ordered. Why? Because we're all rational in this imminent way. By imminent, I mean that it's not that when we recognize our rationality, we are seeing into objective reality. 
what I mean is we, we have that, appear, where that experience of rationality. It doesn't go beyond that. Phenomenologically, you might say, we're aware of, of that faux intelligibility. And we intersubjectively impose the same thing. And that's why the world looks like it's rationally ordered to us. Now, that distinction, that understanding, that bifurcation of reality is everywhere to be encountered today. And it's because of really the fundamental problem that we're talking about here. People cannot conceive of accepting the only possible answer because the only possible answer has to invoke spiritual and metaphysical reality. And I suppose that there's a kind of intuitive uh, uh, awareness of that in some sense or other. And, uh, and so there's you know, this great, you know, a huge hazard from going anywhere near even possibly thinking about admitting that. Um, but anyway, I think we, we must move on. So this, fun, this split, split between knowing and being, it fundamentally comes down to the Cartesian split, which, of course, Kant was an indirect inheritor to that split. But of course, it's a problem raised by any philosophy whose account of intelligibility is merely imminent I wouldn't put Aristotle in that category just because he's a bit mochif. You know, anyone who spent 20 years in the academy with Plato, even if Plato excluded him from his inner circle, as, as uh, J.N. Findlay claims, um, is a bit mochif. So I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say anything about Aristotle, but in terms, not at the moment, but, but in terms of... Uh, some of the direct and indirect inheritors of Aristotle, I think this becomes very defensible. The idea that on numerous of these accounts from someone like Dan Scottus to Ockham to uh, Locke to Hume to many others of them, there's an understanding that, yes, let's leave Hume out of it, Yes, the world is intrinsically distinct in itself, but there is no principle beyond the experience of that distinctness that we can possibly invoke in order to explain it, because our ontology does not in any case allow for that. There's nothing in our ontology which makes sense of an intelligible world. Because what are we faced with? With an empirical world, right? All we see is empirical. All we're receiving is empirical, right? What what can you say about an empirical world which nonetheless evinces all of these features which bespeak and necessitate and invoke and presuppose a rational framework? into which those empirical things fit. It's necessary. Now that is what Kant recognizes and you have to thank him for it. That's why 
I'm a little bit, it's not, he's not the first person in the universe to recognize it, but, but uh, amongst moderns, I think we have to be a little bit careful about the excessively straw man account of Kant, where he is just very bad, 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 bad man. And it has to be refuted as quickly as possible, as, as, as uh, decisively as possible. And then we kind of go off in a half and, 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 and try to never mention his name again. I don't think he is that nefarious a figure Yes, he's been interpreted. Well, no, I shouldn't say that. His real message is evil, yes. His conclusions are evil. The, the impact which he has had on the world at large is evil, straightforwardly. <laughs> but the way that he gets to his evil has some real good in it. And I think that, you know, we have to try to emerge from the level of taqlid where almost, which always trying to give a hukum shara'i on, you know, is can't haram or halal. And when we find out he's haram, it's like, huh, which that works for halal and haram questions, but this isn't a halal and haram question, except in a very aradi fashion. Um, so I think we have to we have to try to stay out of that very black and white thinking. You know, I I I I, I put those questions before, let's say, when I'm addressing Cambridge students who who show a certain level of estiadad. Why? Because they are exposed night and day to so much inharaf. When you come and sit down with them and you say, proofs for the existence of God. That's number one. Number two, and it's just not gonna work. It doesn't mean that the thing is, it doesn't mean that the thing is not valid in itself. It's just that that is not how you speak to someone who is, uh, living with Foucault, Yanni, night and day. It's just, it's just not going to work. It's not going to. It's not going to be convincing. Um, anyway, let's read the thing. One point two point one from the inaugural dissertation to the key to the secret of hitherto still obscure metaphysics. One of the most important texts then, and important in this regard from Kant's early critical phase is his famous letter of February 21st, 1772 to his former student at the University of Konigsberg and responded in the defense of his inaugural dissertation, physician and philosopher Marcus Hertz. In this letter, Kant most revealingly sets out his plans for his crowning intellectual project, to wit, a work that might perhaps have the title, The Limits of Sense and Reason, which would divide into theoretical and practical parts. As I thought through the theoretical part, Kant tells Hertz, considering its whole scope and <laughs> the reciprocal relations of all its parts, I noticed that I still lacked something essential, something in my long-held metaphysical studies I, as well as others, had failed to pay attention to, and that, in fact, constitutes the key to the whole secret of hitherto still obscure metaphysics. I asked myself, 
what is the ground of the relation of that in us which which we that in us which we call representation to the object end quote. Yeah. Kant had already established his signature and sharp distinction between sensibility and a broad construal of understanding in the doctrine of the dissertation with which Hertz was so intimately familiar. Although the Kant of the dissertation maintained, as he would likewise in the CPR, that sensibility only provides us with knowledge of appearances due to the subjective influence of the forms of time and space that constitute it. This pre-critical Kant held that the understanding, on the other hand, gives us knowledge of things as they are. This is the dictum that in his letter to Hertz, Kant begins to doubt could possibly be coherent. It seems that Kant is becoming aware of, his, of the highly unsatisfactory nature of the account of the origin of this knowledge of things as they are that he had put forward in the dissertation. Can we stop there? So this is the really key shubha that sparks off the entire critical project. And he's corresponding with Marcus Hertz and Note 13, it says the original title page of the inaugural dissertation tells us that the function of respondent will be undertaken by Marcus Hertz of Berlin, of Jewish descent, a student of medicine and philosophy against opponents. And this was one of his closest disciples and, and uh, friends. And there are, there are many letters between them if you look in the correspondence. So he tells him he's working. This is as we said, nine years before the publication of Critique of Pure Reason, he's working on something that might be called the limits of sense and reason. And it's going to divide into theoretical and practical parts. As we see, that's a fundamentally Aristotelian distinction, as we'll see later on. But Kant tells Hertz that as he was thinking through the theoretical part, which would turn into the Critique of Pure Reason, which is the Kant's theoretical philosophy, rather than the critique of practical reason, which is his practical philosophy. Kant tells Hertz, when, as I thought through the theoretical part, considering its whole scope and the recipro reciprocal relations of all its parts, I noticed that I still lacked something essential, something that in my long metaphysical studies, I, as well as others, had failed to pay attention to, and that in, in fact constitutes the key to the whole secret of hitherto still obscure metaphysics. I asked myself, what is the ground of the relation of that in us, which we call representation to the object? Now, there's already a kind of myopia here in the way that he's framing the question, which given his, which is this assumption that knowing and being are already cut off from one, one another. And so that's a, that's a kind of given. There's no need to even question that. What I was trying to say earlier is that in traditional philosophy of the best type, this question in this form would never even arise in the first place. It's often said by historiographers of philosophy that, who are perhaps not the most Mahakit type, that traditional philosophies are pre-critical and they do really mean that in fundamentally a Kantian sense. That is, that what does pre-critical mean? It means that they don't feel the need to ask this fundamental question. What does Kant mean by dogmatic? What does he mean by critical? Let's remind ourselves. By 
dogmatic. He means the forms of traditional philosophy which do not look at the instrument, i.e. human cognition, to see whether it's up to the task that it sets itself. And that's how the focus of philosophy in the Western tradition becomes so primarily epistemological, it becomes obsessed with the, the problem of knowledge rather than being really concerned with the problem of being what is really there, the hierarchy of being and so on. It becomes obsessed with the problem of knowledge fundamentally because of this assumption of the, of, of, of the separatedness of knowing and being, right? So traditional philosophies are branded pre-critical because they don't seem to do that. Now, as some of the better of these historians of philosophy have noted, it's actually not true even on that, their own modern definition of critical, of course, it would be anachronistic, either critical in a, in a counter way, but it's not even true on that understanding of, on, on the, yani, the purport of critical here, to say that all traditional philosophies were, were not critical. In fact, especially in the Platonic tradition, there is a great level of awareness of different types of aql, different manifestations of aql, and the limitations of certain types. The fact that dianoia, for example, cannot attain to direct experiences, direct knowledge of things. But you need to have noesis, which, which requires a, a type of spiritual preparedness Right, so that in that is critical in the sense that it's looking at dianoia at which most people are stuck, and saying that actually can't achieve an awful lot of what it would be good to be able to achieve. The same thing can be said of certainly the Akbarian tradition. To to some degree, you might you know that famous passage that you love, Mustafa, from Ibn Sina. Uh, uh, that it could be construed as as critical not being able to know other than yeah uh, not being able to know other than properties probably your least favorite passage actually but it's so just you <laughs> some good materials yeah <laughs> but uh but there's that but but then what where it becomes very clear is in the akbarian tradition um <laughs> where you have sheikh al-akbar's distinction between and that where that's where it becomes very very clear because he says have a had they have a limit at which they must come to a stop insofar as they are mutafakir, but they have no limit insofar as they are qabil, right? Insofar as they can be taught by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? What is the aql? What's the aql? And you know. There might be a big khilaf lafi between you know, a lot of the people who are really against aql and the people who, are, who promote aql. Maybe there's just a gigantic khilaf lafi, misunderstanding. Uh, the, the, because the aql is the faculty of distinct cognition. Distinct cognition. Yani, not perception mutlaqan, which let's say al-fard is, is, could be indeterminate and distinct let's say someone you know has a 
hallucinations. They don't know what on earth is going on. They can't describe it. It doesn't make sense. And it's just a nightmare. No, not that. Distinct cognition of haqqa'iq. It's got nothing to do with logic chopping, nothing to do with every A is B and every B is C and every A is, is C and, and just like, you know, tangling yourself up in, in, uh, in logic. It's not to do with that at all. That's just one outward tip of, of, of logic. That's how you uncover, right? That's how you uncover principles of unity when you when there's a veil between you and the principle of unity you don't have the act the 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 possibility of direct access to something you can use aql in the sense of tafakkur what is it what is tafakkur right so you can use to consider the essence of a thing and then by unpacking that using the syllogistic process you can then get to beyond merely the definition of a thing to its place within a universal order you can find the place its real intrinsic place of that thing in the the universal order of the hierarchy of being. That's where you can you, you can do that using the aql in the sense of, of fikr. But what does aql mean mutlaqan? It's the same as the qalb. When someone's having a cash experience, do they not know what's going on? They they have a distinct experience. That's the aql. That's the that's the aql. It might not be the Definition usually given for aql, but it is fundamentally aql. Now, what does it mean? It means the human faculty for being able to cognize distinct haqqaiq. That's what it is. It's the human faculty for being able to say, when you're doing tafakkur, when you're doing fikr, it's not something fundamentally different. It's something which... It's a, it's a way of seeing that is not direct. It's through a wasata. And, but it's still a, a manner of seeing. It's still a way of, of, uh, of, of it's, a, it's a route to true knowledge. But it comes through finding the principle of unity that unites the multifarious aspects of a thing that you can cognize. And in any case, not on my path to get into this. There is a difference between the formal aspect of logic. The formal aspect is simply the ashkal, the durub, the figures and the moods of logic are uh, the form of reasoning, but they are not the idrak itself. They're not the intelligibility itself. That's something else. That's something given to us, which is metaphysical. They're not the very possibility in the first place for us to have such a faculty, which is capable of doing logic. What that presupposes is, a, is, a, is the ability to distinctly cognize 
realities. Can we go on, Melanie? From the bottom of page 16. Modern scholars often criticize the dissertation as in some sense platonic, but if this is meant in any philosophically serious sense, it is scarcely defensible. This is because the, this is because despite the lip service he pays to the mind's access to things as they are, the pre-critical Kant nonetheless already staunchly insisted on the unavailability of intellectual intuition as a form of human cognition. Okay, can we stop there? So in his dissertation, this most important of modern philosophers held that sensibility only provides us with knowledge of appearances. That is something that at the time was quite atypical. That was quite idiosyncratically Kant. And he also likewise goes on to hold that in the CPR. Now, the great diversity very significant diversion uh, uh, way in which he diverts from the CPR in the inaugural dissertation is that he holds that the understanding gives us knowledge of things as they are. That, on the other stand at the time, was quite standard. The idea that the understanding gives us knowledge of things as they are was quite standard. The empiricists would not have said that because they would say that the, sensib the sensibility gives us and uh, knowledge of things as they are. And, and all of our concepts of the understanding, just to use Kantian language, are derived from sensibility, somehow reducible sensibility. But if you're talking about the rationalists, that would be a very acceptable claim to most rationalists that the understanding gives us knowledge of things as they are. So let's have a look. Let's have a look at 17. Right. I don't know why that notes that it should probably be when it says that sensibility only provides a knowledge of appearances, but anyway, never mind. Seven, 17, sensibility, quote, this is from inaugural dis dissertation, sensibility is the receptivity of a subject in virtue of which it is possible for the subject's own representative state to be affected in a definite way by the presence of some object. Intelligence, rationality, is the faculty of a subject in virtue of which it has the power to represent things which cannot by their own quality come before the senses of that subject. Why by their own quality? What is an intelligible object? An intelligible object is something which is the object of the intellect, not the object of the senses. So the concept of the universal, right? That's not the object of senses. Bueno, you're, you're never going to find it because it's not an object of the senses. It's an object of the intellect. So sensibility is the receptivity of the knowing subject to receive something which is out there, right? Something that is, which is out there in extra mental reality. So one of his first dogmatisms is this assumption, as we'll see. I won't get into it now because it's in here, but is this assumption that the only way that we can be affected by something extra mental in an infiali way, affectively, infiali way, is through sensibility, right? So for him, the understanding is inert. It's not receiving, right? It's not receiving from something outside. The sensibility is inert. 
even in the inaugural dissertation. So the object of sensibility is the sensible, he goes on, that which contains nothing but what is to be cognized through the intelligence is intelligible. In the schools of the ancients, the former was called a phenomenon and the latter a noumenon. Mm. On the other hand, in the inaugural dissertation, Kant has not yet made his later distinction between understanding and reason as separate faculties, right? So, although the, the Kant of the dissertation, sorry to stop you reading, it is I remember as I wanted to read the note. Although the Kant of the dissertation maintained, as he would likewise in the CPR, that sensibility only provides us with knowledge of appearances due to the subjective influence of the forms of time and space that constitute it. So he also has that, he already has that very distinctive doctrine. This pre-critical Kant held that the understanding, on the other hand, gives us knowledge of things as they are. Let's have a look. So, so he is holding this just a few years before he makes a move in philosophy, which completely changes the world. Let's have a look, 18. In this, so, so he's holding to the traditional understanding that the understanding gives us knowledge of things. Now, why would you think that the understanding, right, would not give us thing, knowledge of things as they are? Why would you think that? It's not just a rhetorical question and you're supposed to answer, well, that's obviously dumb. No, why would you think that? And we'll find out, I think, hopefully, why he thought he had to make that move. So he says, you would have thought it would be Badihi that you would think, well, that's going to give you knowledge of, of things as they really are. A deeper thing would be to say, well, you're making that distinction between a things as they are and a things not as they are using your understanding anyway. So why should you give credence the, to the idea that your understanding can't give you knowledge of things as they are when you've just accepted the category of things as they are, which Yaakov just gave you. That doesn't make sense. So number 18, in this way, whatever in cognition is sensitive is dependent upon the special character of the subject insofar as the subject is capable of this or that modification by the presence of objects, the sensibility. These modifications may differ in different cases according to the variations of subjects, but whatever cognition ex is exempt from such subjective conditions relates only to the object. It is thus clear that things which are thought sensitively are representations of things as they appear, while things which are intellectual are representations of things as they are. Okay, so we got up to the point where we said, Kant seems to be going towards Platonism. He's often characterized in later literature as being a bit of a Platonist when in the inaugural dissertation because he thinks that the mind can have knowledge of things as they are, right? Um, but what is the very fundamental difference? The very fundamental difference is Kant, even in the inaugural dissertation, that's why his position doesn't really make sense in the inaugural dissertation, his position that the mind can know things as they are is not really defensible because it doesn't actually invoke the only possible cognitive process me mechanism, if you'll forgive me for saying that, by which that could be possible, i.e. intellectual intuition. 
Now, the Platonists do recognize intellectual intuition uh, and, and, uh, and can't staunchly insist that there's no such thing. So, uh, which is right here in, in 19. He says, there is for man no intuition of what belongs to the... I actually had to read the whole inaugural dissertation when I was writing this. It was very exciting. There is for man no intuition of what belongs to the understanding, but only a symbolic cognition. And thinking is only possible for us by means of universal concepts in the abstract. Again, what is intuition? It's one of those really fluffy words, which you might think, which can mean whatever you want it to mean. No, here it means something very, very simple indeed, which is the direct relation of the knowing subject to a distinct object, right? Whether that object is a sensible object or whether that object is an intelligible object. So what is he saying to translate it into English? What's he, what he's saying is the human being is incapable of possessing a direct relation to the intelligible world because he's already told us that the sensible world is subjective because it is only cognized insofar as it is determined by the a priori forms of time and space. So it's fundamentally subjective. Now he still wants to cling on in the inaugural dissertation because he's still basically a, a normal person, he's still a normal philosopher at this time. He, he, he still wants to cling on to the idea that the aql can give you knowledge of things as they are. The senses can't, but the aql can. So it's kind of a weird thing that, you know, uh, this Kantian knowing subject, inaugural dissertation knowing subject is walking around looking at a world which is completely subjective, but his thinking is, is, capture, is getting to things as they are. And that includes the existence of God, as you'll see. So his thinking is getting to things as they are, but his, the, the world he's looking at is completely subjective, right? So he, but he's nonetheless insisting even in the inaugural dissertation where he says that the mind can know things as they are that we we nonetheless don't have a direct relation to an intelligible world but it has to be an intelligible world for kant why because that sensible world is not going to give you anything that's purely subjective so if the mind knows real things it's never going to know anything real about the sensible objects, but it might be able to know something real about intelligible objects. So he says, um, yeah, 19, there is for man no intuition of what belongs to understanding, but only a symbolic cognition, which he doesn't expand on, by the way, and all the exegetes say that, and thinking is only possible for us by means of universal concepts in the abstract, not by means of a singular concept in the concrete, right? So, universe, this is kind of the beginnings of his doctrine of the understanding that you'd find in the CPR. Universal concepts don't pertain to any particular state of affairs. They are universal, right? Now, if you think of our definition of universal, the kulli is that the who, who's the thing who's pure, the pure 
conceptualization of the Kuli does not preclude the participation of many things under that concept, right? So the pure concept, now that's in a way how he's describing the understanding here. He's saying the, the concepts and the understanding don't pertain intrinsically to a particular object. He's already feeling towards. So what does that mean? It means that if you had a concept in a platonic sense, let's say like, let's say like stability, stability of essence, right? Al-thubut, right, al-thubut. If you had a concept like thubut, on this model, it's just a universal. It doesn't pertain to anything in particular. It just pertains to lots of things in potentia. And it doesn't mean it's not valid. It may be valid, but it, it doesn't pertain to anything in particular. The opposite view is that, no, if you have an intellectual intuition of thubut, that means, that means there's thubut th itself. There it is. That's the boot itself. As one of the ingredients of our, you've seen it in the intelligible world, right? That doesn't mean it's the intelligible world is this dry place where just full of concepts and floating ideal tables and things like that. It's, it's, it just means that for epistemological purposes, uh, in insofar as rooting a realist metaphysics and epistemology by rooting our ultimate concepts and uh, uh, the, the, the ultimate concepts that we employ that render the world intelligible, you there's actually a direct relation that you are able to achieve. It's in the nature of the Akal anyway, to a distinct state of affairs which is actually existent in itself in the intelligible world i'm trying to say is that doesn't mean that what is equality itself in a metaphysical realm no it's not a world of inert stuff like there there's equality floating around in this mystical world and there's conjunction floating around in this mystical world and no the 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 world the worlds of of Alam al-Mithal, Alam al-Arwah. There are abstract objects in Alam al-Mithal. I mean, that's the whole point of Alam al-Mithal. Alam al-Mithal is a world of ma'ani, which are not embodied in themselves, right? They're not embodied in themselves. They have the potential to take on numerous bodily forms. But with respect to itself, that thing is not a particular bodily form. Right. In Alam al-Arwah, you have the, an understanding of those ma'ani possessing a type of personhood, right, which is munazzah an al-suwar. It's not, it's not a world of images. It's, it's something prior to the world of images. It's, it's, it's a ma'ana which possesses a kind of, um, a kind of personhood. Now, and then you have Alam al 
ayana thabita where the the maani are their real essence is to be madahir of of the names names and attributes of allah ta'ala their real essence is not to um um excuse my stomach their real essence is is uh is not to to be distinctly themselves so they have two aspects they have the aspect by which they are in 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 which they are mazahir of uh the names and attributes and and another atibar is that they are the ultimate exemplars of the realities which unfold in 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 the subsequent levels of reality um point i'm trying to make is we are encountering the outward tips of those intelligible realities when we talk about things like equality and things like that what ultimately are those things right what what ultimately are those things those things ultimately are the primary attributes of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right that's where they're ultimately rooted the 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 the, the primary attributes of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala identity for example is a ray as shaykh al-qaisari says is a ray of his identity right identity as we encounter it as a concept it's a ray of allah subhanahu identity uh oneness as a concept as we receive it where does it come from oneness unity it's a ray of his unity entering the world possibility is a ray of his infinite plenitude the infinite plenitude of his as he doesn't have any possibilities in essence hasha akalla but he has the infinite plenitude of power to create all things right and so on so yani why is this a philosophy which bridges the mystical and the rational and the normative sense it's because why is it bridged the mystical and the rational and the, and the big, it's because it tries to take you to the edge of the waterfall with the aql and show that it's impossible to consistently doubt the existence of a metaphysical realm i'm just trying to say that doesn't mean that genuinely underlies it is not just imminent i'm trying to say that doesn't mean that on this discursive level we're talking about equality and conjunction and think it sounds like we're just fantasists if we think that we're describing the real metaphysical world now we're we're describing the outward tip in so far as you you look at the ultimate springs of the aql emerging from that world and that's what the platonists do as well because as sheikh al-akbar says he says it's very rare in al-fatihat al-makkiyah he says it's very rare for philosophers to be able to have possess kashfi dhawqi knowledge but one of the exceptions is he says aflatun al-ilahi and that the whole basis of, it, of his philosophy was dhawqi knowledge which is entirely borne out by actually looking into platonism which is quite amazing actually really um so yeah sorry 
So for all our intuition is bound to a certain principle of form, and it is only under this form that anything can be apprehended by the mind immediately or as singular, and not merely conceived discursively by means of general concepts. But this formal principle of our intuition, space and time, is the condition under which something can be the object of our senses. Accordingly, this formal principle is the condition of sensitive cognition, is not a means to intellectual intuition. Moreover, since it's only through, it's all assumptions, by the way, Moreover, since it is only through the senses that all of the matter of our cognition is given, the noumenon as such cannot be conceived by means of representations drawn from sensations. Thus, the concept of the intelligible as such is devoid of all that is given in human intuition. The intuition, namely, of our mind is also always passive. It is accordingly only possible insofar as it's possible something to affect our sense. Yes. Shall we read on, Lena? Uh, we cannot have direct insight into an intelligible world beyond metaphysical concepts then. And those concepts, moreover, possess no intrinsic relationship to the only intuitions quote, by which anything can be apprehended immediately or as singular, end quote, namely the deliverances of sensibility. What follows from this is that since then, quote, empirical concepts, uh, imp empirical principles are not found in metaphysics. The concepts met with in metaphysics are not to be sought in the senses, but in the very nature of the pure understanding. And that not as innate concepts, but as concepts, concepts abstracted from the laws inherent in the mind by attending to its actions on the occasion of an experience, and therefore as acquired concepts. To this genus belong possibility, existence, necessity, substance, cause, etc., together with their opposites or correlates. Such concepts never enter into any sensory representations as parts and thus they could not be abstracted from such represent such a representation in any way at all end quote in rather the manner in which in one aspect of avicenna's theory of cognition secondary intelligibles constitute the mind's <coughs> natural processing of first intelligibles kant ascribes the concepts met with in metaphysics <coughs> to the laws inherent in the mind rendered distinct to the knower by rendered distinct to the knower by attending to the mind's actions on the occasion of an experience yet the analogy rapidly rapidly breaks down when it becomes clear that kant acknowledges no link of abstraction from sensible particulars no rootedness therein nor an agent intellect providing both imminent intelligibility to the sense object and the corresponding universals to the knowing subject subject let alone any doctrine of platonic forms unless when we become aware through concepts of the laws inherent in the mind we are having an intuition into the real structure of an intelligible world that is a direct cognition of a distinct intelligible object what possible justification can we have for thinking that our concepts represent things as they are it is in noting this incoherence that beck has pointed out that the absence of intellectual intuition in the dissertation is a lacuna the inconsistency of which Kant is precisely recognizing in the problem he is grappling with in his letter to Hertz. Oh, lacuna is another one of our favorite words. Um, thank you, Sidi. So, yes, this is uh, acknowledged as being a, a very fundamental inconsistency in Kant's earlier pre-critical philosophy which is that he wants us to think that the mind can have direct access to things as they are, but he's absolutely certain that we can't have intellectual intuitions because he thinks the only way that we can be affected by an object is through sensibility. He assumes that, doesn't, now you'd think a great philosopher like Kant wouldn't just assume, no, he assumes that, 
for the rest of his life. Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, you would expect most people to assume that today, that the only way we can be affected by an object is by by sensibility, because the you know the objects of the mind are not real objects; they're just abstract concepts. So you would, I mean, there's a kind of apparent plausibility there, but not in the context of, of traditional philosophy. So he wants us to think that the 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 concepts of the pure understanding are concepts abstracted from the laws inherent in the mind by attending. That's not very likely. That's but 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 more. More problematically, it's a purely imminent account. The laws inherent in the mind, but you're not having a direct intuition into things. Is there? You're not having a direct relation. You're just imminently experiencing your mind. That's not going to work, as Beck has has also pointed out. Um, I'll just read. Um, uh, it, well, if you want to go into more detail about this read note 21 uh, if you if you feel like it um later it's a kind of exegetical thing it's not really necessary so um Sidio Molana Niaz would you like to read on thank you so much Molana uh Absolutely. The only thing is, um, you should stop me if uh, the internet starts to break up again. It will. I just wanted to give say to use of a rest. Sure. Uh, so we reached uh, up to footnote twenty-one. Yeah. Okay. This problem forms the backdrop for one of the even greater urgency, for one of even greater urgency, for that of the letter to Hertz and for the subsequent formulation of the central problem of the CPR. This lies in the fact that when in the dissertation, Kant tells us, quote, that things which are thought sensitively are representations of things as they appear, while things which are intellectual are representations of things as they are, he scarcely musters any account of the interaction of the privileged intelligence with its knowledge of things as they are, with the sensibility mired, as he portrays it, in its irredeemable subjectivity. Kant was happy for the intelligence to remain objective, and our knowledge of the actual constitution of individual objects in the sensible world to remain subjective. Okay, can I just do 22? As Gaia affirms, Kant in the dissertation virtually ignores any possible role for the intellect in the cognition of objects of sensibility. Though this is precisely the crucial function of the faculty of understanding in his later scheme. Instead, Kant chiefly considers an alleged use of the intellect for the cognition of objects which do not ma manifest themselves to sensibility in any form. And we'll, we'll, we'll have a look at that in a moment. Tvaddal Siddhi. Yet simultaneously, and despite his most earnest and most futile efforts to strictly quarantine them from one another, and indeed, as if quite despite himself, he does budget for some form of illumination of the nature of sensible objects by the intelligence. Quote, the hinge then 
upon which the question about the principle of the form of the intelligible world turns is this. To explain, how is it possible that a plurality of substances should be in mutual interaction with each other? And in this way belong to the same whole, which is called the world. Here we witness then Kant's last vestiges of commitment to a recognizably metaphysical program before his redefinition of metaphysics in the CPR, that of seeking the unconditioned, the ultimate principle of unity of all being, which the later Kant would famously lambaste as transcendental illusion. Mm -hmm. Quote, the unity in the conjunction of substances in the universe is a corollary of the dependence of all substances on one being. Hence, the form of the universe is testimony to the cause of its matter, and only the unique cause of all things taken together, quote, is the cause of its entirety. And there is no architect of the world who is not also, at the same time, its creator. So there's quite a good count here. Good Kant. So he says the hinge upon which the question about the principle of the form of the intelligible world turns is this, to explain how is it possible that a plurality of substances should be a mutual interaction with each other. And in this world belong to the same whole, which is called a world, right? You find a very similar passage in Miss Bahalons, by the way, <laughs> um, uh, in which he actually defines the world as the principle of unity of the world. There's a beautiful passage, I'll, I'll find it. But, uh, but then he says, this in the CPR, this type of thing, he would only a few years later he would consider transcendental illusion. This is trying to find the unconditioned, and he considers this to be a kind of primitive urge of the reason, which it can't help wanting to do because of its nature, but it can never really bear out, it can never really justify, it can never really verify, right. The unity in the conjunction of substances in the universe is a corollary of the dependence of all substances on one being. So he's putting forward a, a, a fundamentally sound argument. Hence, the form of the universe is testimony to the cause of its matter, and only the unique cause of all things taken together is the cause of its entirety. And there is no architect of the world who is not also at the same time its creator. This is basically what you might call in the, the henological argument. It's the idea that the world must possess an ultimate principle of unity and existence and all phenomena must possess an ultimate principle of unity which transcends them. So it's a proof for the existence of God, of the, of, but in terms of God being the ultimate principle of unity, right? He's Ahad, which is the ultimate principle of unity, and he's Samad, every, everyone goes to him for their need. He's the single principle of unity. He's independent in himself. Shall we go on, Maulana? Sure. Okay. Although the ontology put forward in the dissertation provides no coherent account whatever, or maybe even whatsoever, of how this could be possible, as we have seen, many aspects of his subsequent critical project are already in place at this stage, the Kant of the dissertation 
has nonetheless felt able to offer some noumenal knowledge of sensible objects. He has himself told us that to the genus of concepts met with in metaphysics, which are not to be sought in the senses, but in the nature of the understanding, quote, belong possibility, existence, necessity, substance, cause, etc., together with their opposites or correlates. Yet so kind here, of a bit, bit of the moram and a, and a bit of the categories there. Yet here, he has just invoked the concepts of substance, dependence, and cause to describe the true nature of the world and to identify the cause of the world undeterred by the fact that he has scarcely drawn breath from assuring us that such concepts, quote, are not to be sought in the senses. So he's made this great, this stark distinction between the, the understanding and the sensibility, but then he's tried to tell us that the understanding can illuminate something about the world of sensibility because he's talking in what he says above, the unity in the conjunction of substances in the universe, et cetera, et cetera. So there's another fundamental inconsistency. Given thus this background of evidently incurable confusion and self-contradiction in posing the question, quote, what is the ground of the relation of that in us, which we call, quote, representation to the object? At the outset of his 1772 letter to Hertz, we are witnessing some of the first stirrings of epistemological misgivings that would give way in the fullness of the ensuing years in which Kant toiled in the writing of the CPR to the fully fledged metaphysical subjectivism that represents the central and most distinctive doctrine of the critical philosophy. Kant expands on some of the considerations that have given his question such an urgency. Yeah. Quote, our understanding through its representations is not the cause of the object, nor yeah. is the object the cause of the intellectual representations in the mind. Therefore, the pure concepts of the understanding must not be abstracted from pure sense perceptions nor must they express the reception nor must they express the reception of representations through the senses but though they must have their origin in the nature of the soul they are neither caused by the object nor bring the object itself into being kant indeed seems to be becoming aware so this is that in the the letter just to make sure everyone's aware we've now switched back to the letter which is later than the dissertation Kant indeed seems to be becoming aware that given the ontological and epistemological presuppositions of the dissertation, his placing of sensibility and the understanding in strict isolation from one another was not viable. Quote, in my dissertation, I had said, the sensuous representations present things as they appear. The intellectual representations present them as they are. But by what means are these things given to us, if not by the way in which they affect us? And if such intellectual representations depend on our inner activity, whence comes the agreement that they are supposed to have with objects, objects that are nevertheless not possibly produced thereby? 
and the actions of pure reason concerning these objects, how do they agree with these objects, since the agreement has not been reached with the aid of experience? Okay, so he's finally bitten the bullet and uh, told us what is really motivating, or at least he's told Marcus Hertz what he wants to tell Marcus Hertz, but he's, he's told him what has really motivated what would later turn into this yani, unparalleled work in modern philosophy. So, as you can see, it's coming out of certain assumptions that are already there in the inaugural dissertation. So he's already assuming there that the only way we can possibly be affected by objects is through sensibility. So he's, that's a, a fundamental assumption he's not gonna budge from, right? Now, he then finds that because there's no, there doesn't seem to be any possible principle that could then justify, or there's nothing that could constitute a principle of unity uniting sensibility and understanding. He comes to feel that the understanding which he has up to this point said has access to things as they are must also, the, 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 the conclusion he will come to is that the understanding must also be subjective, must also be imposed, just like the forms of time and space are imposed upon sensibility. How is he going to solve this conundrum of how there can possibly be an agreement between the concepts of the understanding and sensibility? How can knowledge coalesce to provide a world which is, in, is, is subjectively knowable or, or distinctly knowable? How can, how can that be possible? If the concept of the understanding, as far as he's concerned, can't be derived from the sensible object, because he's already de decided they all have to be uh, uh, subjective. The concept of the understanding can't be derived from the sensible objects, but also for the more sensible reason that, well, the sensible objects don't show any sign of those intelligible objects. When you try to isolate them, when I look around this room, as I forgive me for endlessly repeating, but this is kind of the nub of the matter. When I look around me, all of the intelligible concepts, which turn this into a, a distinctly ordered experience, they're none of the empirical qualities. There are none of the empirical qualities. You can analyze every single empirical quality and you will never find any of the intelligible properties which render that world relationally as a world that is relationally composed of substantial unities, right? You will never find them in, in any of the actual empirical features of the thing. You can isolate each empirical feature, but it won't show any signs of that that intelligible property but what Kant's saying is the intelligible properties clearly have to be there otherwise the world wouldn't be distinct and noble in the manner in which it is so what he's saying since we know the only way that we can be affected by 
an object is by sensibility. And since we know that the understanding neither causes the object, right, nor is it abstracted uh, fr from the object, because there's, there's no sign of it, then we have a, a problem. We have a, 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 a profound difficulty there, which I would say that he most succinctly sums up by saying, if such intellectual representations depend on our inner activity, whence comes the agreement that they're supposed to have with objects? Objects that are nevertheless not possibly produced thereby. What he's come to realize is, I haven't accounted in the inaugural dissertation for how it can be that the world as we cognize it, as we, come, we become aware of it, can only be recognized for what it is, for even, even to recognize the concept of sensibility through the concepts of the understanding. How do we even recognize the, the category of sensibility? It's only through concepts of the understanding. We can't single out sensibility as being really what it is, sensibility, that category, except in terms of the concepts of the understanding. And he's realized also that uh, if he's posited no possible relationship between intellectual representations, the understanding, i.e. the understanding and sensibility, and yet in his crowning arguments of the inaugural dis dissertation, which are about the principle of unity of the world and the existence of God, he is talking about the application of concepts of the understanding to the, the world, which is co composed of, of, of sensible objects. That doesn't work. And then he finally says the axioms of pure reason concerning these objects. How do they agree with these objects since the agreement has not been reached with the aid of experience? So uh, let's go on, Molana. Okay. Okay. Kant's key unexamined assumptions thus far in the letter are that one, a representation already intrinsically separated from objects is the way that we come to know things. That two, representation can only mean, quote, a way in which the subject is affected by the object. And three, the only conceivable mode of being affected by an object is by its empirical features. He moreover assumes that for the distinct knowability of both sensuous and intellectual representations cannot possibly derive from a common source in an intelligible world prior to both. On this final assumption, the ground for the interaction of the quote, pure concepts of the understanding and the axioms of pure reason with Kant's strangely facilely or facilely depicted objects flounders in the impossible void, an unfathomable, an unfathomable mystery, just as does the manner in which these concepts are able even to enhance, let alone constitute the intelligibility of these deliverances of sensation. 
1.22 Plato and Deux Ex Machina. But the most incautious of Kant's many indiscretions in his letter is certainly represented by his extraordinarily cavalier attack on Plato. It also justifies his rejection out of hand of four above, which happens to be the only real answer to his self-imposed conundrum. I think you're reading the PDF, the old one. You're not reading the new one. Yes, it's very possible. It also justifies his rejection at four above of the only real answer to his self-imposed conundrum. Yeah, but it's not a big difference. Just, okay. more, just more precise. Okay, did, 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 are you are you reading just out of it? Are you reading the the PDF of this, or are you reading so, uh, the the document that I sent earlier than that? So I received the PDF. Yeah, that you sent, but I hadn't realized that it had some of these uh, changes. Uh, oh, so, so you're reading the old one. I must be reading the old one. Yes, oh, so I'll print out. Uh, I'll print out. Uh, the, uh, okay, no, no, no problem. I, I just, mm -hmm. I just wanted to make sure that everyone had it. <clears throat> so, well, next time, which will be our last session before the holy month of Ramadan, may Allah give us all sorts of futahat and barakat and beautiful, wonderful connections to the deen and to the haqqaiq and to our brothers and sisters in that time but uh uh but the, but in the next se session we will be talking about plato kant's attempt to dismiss plato and what plato's real doctrine entails especially in terms of intellectual uh, cognition and and the and the world of the forms and also recollection what lies at the heart of, of uh, Plato's philosophy is the doctrine of recollection, which is vikr, vikr basically. And, uh, and it's, it's very similar to uh, an idea of alastabirapikum actually, that there is a, a knowledge that we retain from a, from a prayer disembodied state and that we we have to remember it and if you remember in al futat al when sheikh al-akbar talks about definition and how it's all daruri there are quite a, yani there's 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 uh, there, there there are definitely echoes of that which we know for sure he didn't take from plato right we know for sure he didn't take from plato so um and th and there's all there's so much of that and yani you, one has to recognize the fact that um al sheikh al akbar i think aflatun i think there might be one other philosopher in the entire futat al makia that is mentioned by name or maybe two but there are very very few there's a vanishingly small number so for him to single out Aflatun al-Ilahi and say that he's from the people of Dhauq and that all of his philosophy came from spiritual experience is not only extraordinary because Sidi Aslan know uh, it's very unlikely that Jacob Akbar had access to what to Plato's works. He may have had access to, let's say, 
the Republic, possibly with Ibn Rushd's commentary, um, he might have had access to the theology of Aristotle. He certainly refers to Allah in one place as Al-Khair Al-Mahd, which uh, is not uh, a kalam term, and it's not a term that you usually see in the Islamic sciences. It's a purely Neoplatonic term. Um, so uh, he may have, and, and that was standardly thought by earlier Orientalist scholars to have been just a direct borrowing definitely from the theology of Aristotle. And now they've come to their senses and realized that um, in the newer consensus that that's not necessarily the case. It may have just been a term which is in the air. It's possible that Sheikh Akbar just had direct cash for that term, but people who insist on that, um, I think are completely missing the point because it's, it's not terms that he, he has to have cash for. It's, uh, it, it's ma'ani, it's ma right? That's what you're supposed to have cash for, not the term. He doesn't have to derive all of his terms. That's just the, the, the apparatuses of expression. I once got very angry with, with dear Sheikh Mustafa here um, back in the, the ancient days um, when he sent me some of his beautiful work for his uh, doctoral thesis. And, and I'd never heard of the idea that, um, and you know, it said that Al-Ghazali has sources. And he took this from this person and this from this person, and this from this person, and he shows the text. And, and you know, very much asib Talib Alam, I was like, you can't say that. Al-Ghazali, you know, took all of those things directly from Kashf and, uh, or he made them up himself. How can you say that he's reliant on some yani, Greek philosopher or earlier philosopher? Shows the marahil you go through in your Almi journey. Now I'm like uh, <laughs> quite different, but but uh, forgive me for that, Sidi. Oh, yeah. So so uh, yani, there's no doubt, yeah, Ikhwani, you know, when you talk about the the intellect and al al and right? And and aql. There's no doubt that comes from Plato's Republic Book Four. There's zero doubt about that. I just wanted to Yani, <laughs> we need to get over the idea that there's some problem with that. There's absolutely no problem with it, with it whatsoever. Why? Because that understanding by which something like that is problematic, comes from a very much more problematic assumption in the first place, which is that um, reality, objective reality is kind of brought into existence when you make up a term, or that reality is not intrinsically intelligible, such that people who have a, a strong istadad to know reality with the faculties that Allah Ta'ala gave them cannot know reality by using them. Plato discovered a truth in Nafs al-Amr. That's what he did. He discovered a truth in Nafs al-Amr. That's what he did. He didn't make it up. It's not Greek philosophy. How can you have Greek logic, right? It's not Greek logic. That's something completely Aradi. They happen to be Greeks, those who, who uncovered these truths about Nafs al-Amr, or who possibly didn't uncover them because I'm sure many other people uncovered them, but, but they formulated them, they put them into a formal, they gave a formal 
expression uh, uh, of those of those truths in Nafs al-Amr. That's the way that our traditional ulama thought. They didn't think foreign, good, bad. Yani, they were they were looking at reality. If something is verified, it doesn't matter where it, where it comes from. So, I just sorry, none of you, no, no one needs that point. So forgive me. No, Habib, it's pretty. Uh, I think it's very important because it, when, when we have someone like uh, Ibn Taymiyyah saying that this is Greek and you don't want to subjugate revelation to it, and then say this is a logical fallacy. For him, it might have been a logical fallacy, but for us to do that means that we are epistemologically historicists. Mm. Uh, yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to say. A lot of people out there renewing Kalam, they actually perhaps even feel like they have to renew it because historicism is the truth. And right. so we have to emerge mm. in our time. Order, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah. What's the alternative to? to the understanding that philosophical schools either correspond to nafs al-amr if they don't or they don't right if something corresponds to nafs al-amr you go and pick it up if it doesn't then you reject it right now but what's the alternative well it's one of them is historicism one of them is the historicism right um they'll, that's, they'll use that principle to pick up modern Logic, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's a door, like everything else in Kalam. That is a, and that's a door, and that's a tasalsal. So Kant's key unexamined assumptions, no offense to door and tasalsal, by the way, I like door and tasalsal. Kant's key, but not everything is a door or tasalsal. Kant's key unexamined assumptions thus far in the letter are that, number one, a representation already intrinsically separated from objects is the way that we come to know things. That's an assumption. It's not actually true at all. Two, representation can only mean, quote, a way in which the subject is affected by the object. That might be true if we're, if we're to, to believe that representation Yani, well, whether we whether we accept one here or not, two can be true. That's no problem. Three, the only conceivable mode of being affected by an object is by its empirical features. Wrong. Right. Mabda al athar al Right is uh, is the essence of a thing even on that kind of abstractionist understanding. But then you have the question of the, the, the intelligible world. What this really comes down to is the question of whether, and this is what the whole Nafsa Amma book is about, the, what, what is, is the question of whether the objects of the mind are basically parasitic upon the, you know, on that view of the real physical world, in which case we have the kind of Kantian problem, all sorts of problems. How do they interact? Where do they come from? How does that make sense? Better just presume that everything's imposed. Or we actually receive an influx, <laughs> as Kant's actually about to, 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 to he was aware of the, the possibility. We actually receive an influx from an intelligible world that illuminates our minds. 
and not all of our concepts attend to them, right? And really, the verification and the experience and the knowledge and the witnessing that our concepts have attained nafs al-amr is through a parallel process of spiritual purification so that we achieve a type of preparedness. That's the fundamental difference. What I claim, and the whole argument of the book, what I'm claiming is that the only way to deal with modern philosophy, especially the Cartesian split and the, the Kantian transcendental <laughs> uh, uh, quagmire, his uh, subjective idealism, is through an understanding like the one that I've just very basically sketched out, which is that knowledge is a, fun, a, a, a truth, human knowing and knowledge are fundamentally metaphysical realities, which constitute effusions from a metaphysical world prior to the physical world, an intelligible world prior to the physical world that the physical world must participate in in order to exist. And that otherwise it won't work. You'd be better off. No, I won't say that. Otherwise it won't work. We suffer from a very, very widespread problem, which is, is that there's no problem. And it might be a kind of feel-good attitude uh, to think that there's no problem because all of the, the Elmi lines of transmission are still in place and you know, that's all good. And that is good. There's a barrier there in those being in place. And there are so many great scholars and, and great Arifin and, and Alama. But the problem of dealing with modern philosophy uh, and dealing with its most fundamental shubhas so that the Muslims are freed from the danger that it poses to their atiqad, to their lives, to their recognition of God, to their recognition of the Prophet Islam, to their understanding of the reality of Islam, it hasn't been done. Quite honestly, it hasn't been done. And I'm going to sound incredibly presumptuous. It doesn't really matter. Maybe I am. But the point is, if you look at efforts that have been made in that direction, Sheikh Mustafa Sabri, who's Al-Ainwarats. But as I was discussing with someone recently, and they had come to exactly the same perspective, he actually doesn't get to the heart of the matter on Kant. He really doesn't. I'm sorry to say this. I, I think he'll forgive me, uh, inshallah ta'ala, because that was what was available to him. And he was a great, great man. And there's huge, there's, there's so much to benefit from him. Uh, but he doesn't get to the heart of the matter. And the extraordinary thing is, if you ask people to identify what is out there which deals with, he doesn't get anywhere close, frankly. And, and actually, the, 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 he doesn't get to the heart of the matter anyway. But then the remedy that he gives is also disastrous, actually. I'll just be honest with you. The, the remedy that he gives which was given with the greatest sincerity is actually, I think, disastrous because I think voluntarist occasionalism as, a, as a, a, an answer to modern philosophy is a disaster because it perpetuates 
all of the what is wrong with modern philosophy just in a different form and so it doesn't it doesn't provide an answer the answer is really not out there and if you ask people to tell you what is available uh, today uh, they'll just say right that was the only thing i could think of a few years ago when somebody asked a question mm. yeah there's very little so I'm not, you know, saying we're all we're, we're so special. I'm just saying, well, what a pity that there's so little going on. Um, um, so let's just finish this off very quickly. Forgive me for keeping you. And, and uh, again, you're, anyone's free to leave at any time anyway, but especially after 10, um, they're super... Uh, uh, I won't take any offence whatsoever, but this will just be five minutes. So Kant's key unexamined assumptions are, are this. We got up to four. He also assumes that the distinct knowability of both sensuous and intellectual representations cannot possibly derive from a common source in an intelligible world prior to both. Okay, that's a pretty big assumption to make, but he makes it absolutely. He is, assumes that the distinct knowability, and when I say assume, I should acknowledge the fact that in the quote on the next page, he does try to swiftly deal with that and then dismiss it by completely misrepresenting Plato. But, but this is something common to all forms of real traditional philosophy, whether it's the agent intellect is, so whence comes this mysterious agreement between the understanding and the sensible? Well, it's because both derive from an intelligible world, intelligible world prior to the sensible world, right? Whether that's the agent intellect whether that is the forms and ultimately of course it is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but I shouldn't say but after that sentence so it's not misunderstood but the 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 the, the difficulty with constantly just saying God did it, God did it, God did it, because Allah did do everything. He's doing everything right now. You know, say, is that it? Yeah. Everything's in Allah's And not only that, everything is nothing but the Nothing has any existence outside of, of him at any moment. So we are advocating a much greater dependent on Allah SWT than, than is often emphasized. But the problem arises from when you say, okay, since we've proved the existence of God in our, some of our matalib kalamiya, we've, we've now proved the existence of God. So now any masala that comes metaphysically, you don't really even look at it. You just say, uh, God did it. Why is this the way it is? Well, God made it like that. Why is there a, an agreement between subject, uh, between understanding and, and, uh, and sensibility? God did it. Why is that? Yani, everything becomes rests epistemologically. It's true that God did it. God's doing everything. But, but in terms of the epistemological procedure, everything there is now resting 
upon the fact that you've proved the existence of God. But the whole point is, if you can't deal genuinely with these shubhas, you haven't proved the existence of God for the vast majority of the universe today. And I would say our real mahakkakin from the Akbarian school and from the those who stayed within Kalam but drew, drew from the Akbarian school would also say that on a, a very basic voluntaristic understanding uh, of uh, theology of God's action, uh, an atom substance um, ontology where the, 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 our cognitive apparatuses and the, and the features of our cognitive apparatus have no ontological status, zero ontological status whatsoever. It's not even consistent. You are using your cognitive apparatuses, which you've just told us don't exist, right? To prove the existence of God. So your epistemological procedure is faulty. It's true that in Nafs al-Ahmad, you have come to a true conclusion, which is that God exists. But does that mean that your way of getting there has to have been sound? No, not in the slightest. And the point is, you won't make any headway with what they would now call God of the gaps. If you can't understand something, you say God did it, right? That Please don't interpret that as an impious statement. God did everything. God is the source of everything. But that epistemological procedure will just not uh, cut any mustard in, in, in the world which, in which we are living. And I, and I don't think in Nafs al-Amr either. So you have a double problem there. Thank you very much, everyone. Sidi uh, Niaz, please, Tafadal. Yeah, do we have time for one or two quick points? As I, uh, I tried to say to people, please don't feel obligated to stay with anyone. I know people have things, you know, I have to say that because the time is eight to 10. So anyone who's present here or who's present online who has to go, please, please do go. I won't be uh, offended. If people want to stay because they're interested, you're more than welcome. So yes, we have time, Maulana. Uh, okay. No, 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 no. Uh, Sidi Hassan, just a small anecdote. I remember you gave me actually, uh, maybe what, uh, 15 years ago? The one who gave me a copy. It was about 50 years ago, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, Mokhe yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you did mention that, that you found his, you know, as you as we know, he, he I think he uses Tafsazani a lot and he does critique uh, Sheikh Al-Akbar quite a bit. Um, and uh, it seems that he learned, you know, Western philosophy through translations to a fairly deep level, perhaps, uh, but maybe not in its uh, entirety. Um, uh, not anywhere near good enough yet. Yeah, I mean, not not the, the kind of rod that uh, obviously you have in mind and what Taba has in mind. Now, even the I'm level of knowledge of Western philosophy, it's not anywhere near what it needs to be. Not anywhere yeah. near. And that's understandable because if you don't have access to the sources, then about the letter by Hertz, you know, and his development, which is in the introduction as well in the King tradition. Yeah. 
It's not just the letter of to her. She didn't have access to. He didn't have access to the the critique of pure reason itself. Sorry to uh, if I'm talking over you, but your line's gone a bit funny. So sure, I thought sure. you'd stop talking. He didn't just not have access to the inaugural uh, dissertation or the letter to Hertz or his correspondence or other works. He didn't even have um, access to the, the the critique of pure reason. Um, so uh, everything was through, um, or almost everything was <coughs> through El Malali Hamdi Yazid's translation of a French work in the about the history of philosophy. So, Yani, Allah bless him. He he. It was. Uh, I think it's helped a lot of people, and he did what was required of him at the time. He did the best that he could. His understanding of kalam, anyway, is not really marifat hafatulash yet very much. I think he's he's he would be happy if people can just be protected from the shubha. Um, and I think that. He wasn't the only one who hadn't really read the Critique of Pure Reason. No one else had either. Right. So, yeah, it was good enough for a lot of people. Exactly. It was exactly. it was what it needed to do. But at the end, is that is that a burhan? No, that's an iqnari argument. That's precisely what an iqnari argument is. Mm -hmm. It was merely convincing, yani, relative to the 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 states and the capacities of the of the person involved so um yeah but yeah i remember that uh you were studying with sheikh wasu <laughs> yeah in, that, still, still, in, that, still in, touch with in that tomb mashallah, <laughs> in in fez it was wonderful <laughs> you know i'm just curious though uh i you know i would agree with you in that at least the work that i'm doing uh, right now uh, you know i'm doing dr Said's book on Kalam in the late 19th and early 20th century. Does, does, probably, yeah. yeah, it does seem like most of the sources that were, you know, primary sources in Western philosophy that they were basically transmitted in a very, you know, cut up form, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but um, having said that, um, I'm still wondering, you know, there are, um, and he has common commentaries on the and on the Methnawi. Um, and I've heard that it's, it's of quite, uh, you know, intriguing interest. What's it his name? Like we're not, I don't know, it, uh, Ahmed Avni Konuk. Oh, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I'm not as familiar with him, but I know Bilal Kushkinar, for example, does think very highly of him. Mm -hmm. uh, although Ekrem Demirli, who's the main Ibn Arabi scholar here in, in Turkey, doesn't think he doesn't. highly of him. Yeah. Um, so we have figures, but we're just, it doesn't seem like we're very familiar with uh, some of their writings. But that's actually a parenthetical note. My, my question actually for you is perhaps a bit more of, let's say, wider in scope. We've talked. Uh, quite extensively about the idea of knowledge being a kind of an effusive, um, an effusion. Yeah. And this seems to be present in the Akbarian tradition, in the Platonic tradition, and quite frankly, it seems to be present in many other traditions. Yeah. Um, it's strange to me that you have 
the kinds of let's say moves yeah that take place by people like Kant I mean I don't I can't say that I know the other traditions very it doesn't seem like anything like this happened in any other civilization I just found that incredibly strange I'm, I'm wondering if you have any theories about this or you know Trinity and the incarnation basically that seems to be what it comes down to you feel oh yeah Trinity is incarnation. Okay, that's interesting. And then Luther. It was held together pretty well for a while, but then when Luther came along, um, I think that was that was it. But but there was always there was fundamentally a problem there anyway. Why? Because there this entailed a split between faith and reason. And if there's a split between faith and reason, in the end, you're going to get your split between <laughs> the sensibility and the understanding, actually. Um, because uh, starting with Luther, he, he believes that the Akal itself is mired in original sin. It was, it was affected by original sin. Right? How does he know that? I'm not sure. I mean, that's a distinct cognition, which I would have thought was the akal. But, but uh, he says that the the akal is mired in original sin. It's affected by original sin, and as a consequence, it can only know the physical, the bad physical world, which is the you know for him is the playground of Satan. It's not a theophanic world. It's a really evil, bad place, um, and uh, the only hope is to have blind faith in christ um it's a very voluntaristic understanding of faith that it's true and we don't even know that it's true and it doesn't make any sense and it's not supposed to make any sense and you get adjured for 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 believing it anyway right and uh, and and it's only thereby that you and that is not the you know all not all Christianities are the same, but it's a it's a it's a very pessimistic understanding of human nature and of the world. Uh, it's not it's not a world uh, of different gradations of the good, Yanni. And he even turns on Dionysius, the Areopagite, pseudo Dionysius, at a particular point. Um, and uh, he turns on, I mean, oh, you don't want to read what um, he says about Aristotle. Actually, a friend sent me a website. Uh, it's a real website. Um, it's a comedy website, but it's, a, it's, it's completely authentic, where you can just be endlessly insulted by Luther, right? <laughs> you just keep on pressing, insult me again. And it gives another quote from a from a real text of Luther. <laughs> yani, insult me again, and because it's all his polemics against his uh, his opponents. <laughs> but uh, but he is very. I mean, what he says about Aristotle, even in twenty twenty two, I can't repeat in polite company. Yani. <laughs> It's like a, a really profound, dirty insult. So, um, 
so you know that was a very pessimistic view so wh wh why is that very briefly why is the, why is the incarnation of the trinity such a problem because the the christian world went through three marahil and i hope to i've worked on this a little bit i hope to perhaps bring it up sometime inshallah the 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 christian world went through three distinct marahil in terms of its relationship to the trinity incarnation one was in its pre coming into contact with the islamic world in the conquest of toledo in 10 88 or whatever it is, I'm sure it's not 1088, but something like that. Um, coming into the, uh, uh, the, the the conquest of Toledo and the opening up of the libraries, and that was, as you know, a very decisive moment because they found all of the lost parts of Aristotle, including the bits on scientific demonstration. Before that, they just had little bits of Boethius and they'd only have had a part of the Organon and they found the Shifa of Ibn Sina and they found the metaphysics of Aristotle. and Without that, they were all still in the cathedral schools of Chartres and things like that, and any you know, Charlemagne and the Carolingian Renaissance and Alcuin of York coming over, and um, and and their understanding, and you know Cluny, the abbots of Cluny. I mean, it was a very nice time, really, uh, but uh, by Western standards. But but um, the model there was basically the Augustinian. I believe in order to understand. And that was also uh, uh, something repeated by Anselm. I mean, it was, a, it was a fundamental principle. I believe in order to understand, which meant there that there is a fundamental continuity and concord between, a necessary concord between the truths of revelation, including primarily the Trinity and incarnation, and reason and when i have that act of iman it's that like being flooded with light model because that's augustine's all about divine illumination then i'll understand something now what what do you what do you understand when you when you understand the doctrine of the incarnation kalam khas because it's not true the doctrine it's very not true but what do you is it is it possible to understand something which is true even though the doctrine is completely false right like for example uh allah created adam on the surah of rahman for example and then you mistake that understanding for what you think you're having to believe in with the incarnation it's possible yani there are there are little bits of truth Yani, when you when they talk about the logos um, as the perfect madhhad of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what does that sound like? Which emanates eternally in his knowledge. That's what we say. It emanates internally in his knowledge. So it's not another person. So it's not problematic. Right? Everything, all of his knowledge emanates eternally because he knows it eternally. I mean, you don't have to say emanates if you want to leave that out, but it, but it, but it all is eternal. You know, his, it emanates from his nature and his names and attributes. His knowledge emanates because his knowledge is the sword of his names and attributes. It arises from, I should say, arises from. So it sounds like superficially, superficially some aspects of that doctrine. But where does it go terribly wrong? It goes terribly wrong because they say the Haqiqah Muhammadiyah, right, is not 
is not an object of knowledge. It's a person. It's a part of God, but it's a distinct person other than God, which emanates eternally, right? Right. And, and uh, so that's where it goes profoundly wrong. In terms of what do we say about the Rosh and all of the prophets on that Kabarian point of view, they are the most perfect mother of Allah. They most perfectly join between the attributes of Jalal and Jamal. But are they, God himself? God himself is infinite, mutlaq. By definition, anything which is determinate and limited, like the, the prophets in the world are, and even in the Haqiq Muhammadiyah, the, limit, the Haqiq Muhammadiyah is limited, it's not mutlaq. Definitionally, therefore, it is not God. End of story. But you can see, because the alternative is problematic the alternative is okay you had for hundreds of years right and there's the shubha of the perennialist basic you had for hundreds of years men who maybe some of them didn't but men who purported to turn away from their lower selves lock themselves away in monasteries to do a badder 24 7 right all of this mortification of the flesh and spiritual purification and belief in God and belief in the spirit and belief in the afterlife, all of this stuff, right? And then they're saying for hundreds of years, I believe in order to understand. And what you have to conclude is everything that the, every baraka and light and everything that they experience. And when you read the, accounts they did experience those things is all istidraj all of it even though what it's telling them is there is a god there is a god there are holy men there is an afterlife right those are part and parcel why because they have battle beliefs do we have to conclude that they don't get any nafat whatsoever from their true beliefs why do we have to conclude that? Alusi's Al uh, commentary on Please correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, not the first the other one. Right? Yeah, the masajid is the most important So, so. There's a, there's a discussion in the tafsir literature. Abu Sa'ud says, why are they, who's a great professor, why are they, and great Sheikh Islam of the Ottoman Empire, why is it referring to all of those things, a lot of which are now completely battle, you, you wouldn't want to preserve them. Yani, why, why would it be referring back to all of those things? Well, it's only referring back, it's the standard thing, which is respectful. It's only referring back to those things in terms of there being uh, Mansur, like when they were real religions, what the verse is saying about them applies, right? The standard thing. And Al-Alusi says, the idea that this only can apply to things which are Mansur, because what is there to stop the, the, he says the fact now this is you see i'm not 
advocating perennialism. This is a different view, which is allows us to yani, reclaim comparative religion from the perennialists while believing in nas complete nasr of the other reason. He says, uh, the fact that another religion is uh, mansur la yunafi baqa'aha ala barakati dhikri lahi ta'ala fiha. That's what he says. Why? why you know, we, we say it's mansur. That means soteriologically, in terms of salvation, it doesn't work. But, Yani, there's something intrinsic to the name of God. That's what I'm trying to say. There's something intrinsic yeah. to the name of God. Now, if we say that, if we posit that there isn't, that's problematic. You see, you always have to look at the other side to see if your own argument is consistent. It says, That means everything in the Bible, because it's associated with a false religion, doesn't have any baraka. When it says, you know, it says, Go to the Psalms, you'll find that exact statement there, by the way, in the present book of the Psalms. You'll, you'll find it. I can't remember which Psalm it is. You'll, you'll find it exactly there. It's in the Psalms, right? Well, I'm supposed to say that doesn't have any baraka, whereas that one. Obviously, does. I mean, the Quranic the Kran one does, but he, he's telling you about one over there, Yanni. And I say, oh, that's, Yanni, I can, Yanni, frankly, Yanni, some of the things that the Fuqaha, some of the Fuqaha say about the Bible, Yanni, any, any, uh, by no means all the Fuqaha, any time that Allah's name is mentioned, that should be revered and honored. And it may have an intrinsic barrier. Also, intrinsically good actions, right? Now it's true that it's batilum makanu if they don't have al iman billah, right? That's true. But the action, a good action, intrinsically, it possesses a, a goodness about it. The person, while they're alive, they will benefit from it. One of the great proofs of this is against this, you know, bleak world of, of voluntarism, right? Is how can there be a khayr in jahiliya if that's all just completely how can there be a khayr how can be the grades of good of participation in the good in jahiliya there were three marahil they went from believing that there is a complete concord between faith and and reason uh, in their platonic phase when they encountered the Aristotelian and Avicennian Islamic science of demonstration, they realized that that doesn't work. All of our arguments for the existence of the Trinity, for the existence of the Incarnation, don't actually work. They don't follow logically. Um, and therefore, Thomas Aquinas actually says in Summa Theologica, we should stop using those arguments because it brings the mockery of the what he considers to be the kafir, he, he brings the mockery of the of the infidel, which obviously means the Muslims, uh, for him, uh, upon us. So we should stop using those arguments. So what he does is he tries to bring this, this very tenuous balance. What he says, what we have to say is the, 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 the Trinity and the Incarnation are not 
um, refuted by reason. They are uh, they 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 are not in, intrinsically contradictory according to reason, but they can't be proven. That's what he says. So that's his his balance between faith and reason. They're not they don't intrinsically contradict reason, but they can't be proven. Now that's the beginning of making a split between different parts of reality. But then you get to Occam, and Occam says something extraordinary because he's a great logician by anyone's standards. He says, no, the Trinity and the Incarnation, especially he's talking about the Trinity in, in what I remember, the particular thing I'm talking about, the Trinity formally contradicts reason. But you just have to treat that as a singularity and in that case, just say bye-bye to reason. That's what you have to do. And you have to prioritize faith over reason. And his whole project, in fact, was to show that reason can't really do a great deal. Trying to be pious, as a pious, uh, with pious intentions, right? Luther is an alchemist philosopher. And he, he, he completes the, the process. What does that mean? It means that our most treasured and for them, their most treasured beliefs about the true nature of reality are something which the Aql says, no, that's contradictory, illogical, absurd, and wrong. So there's a, there's a fundamental split there. There's a fundamental split. Yes. Then you have the scientific revolution, which comes along and says, because religion now after the protestant revolution is causing all of these wars i mean the wars yeah i mean uh, until the 20th century there was nothing like it the 30 years war because this is uh, causing so much dissension we need a new knowledge standard it didn't happen like this in kind of a committee or something but but yeah and it's possible to interpret this as 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 representing what really happened we 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 need a new knowledge standard uh which can can be neutral and 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 be completely exempt from this endless wrangling between catholics and protestants right and that's essentially what uh uh yani that's my two pence worth city i better go okay no because, no that was very helpful because this helpful. needs this needs modella debt yes We'll talk, inshallah. But that's, inshallah. that is inshallah. a very thank you so much, Sidi, and thank you, thank you. It must be like what one forty-five in the morning there. Alhamdulillah. Subhanallah. He's a very Niaz is one forty-five where he is, and he's got he, he works like about twenty-three hours a day. Taibiyamalana. Assalamu alaikum. Barakatuh, Istanbul. Assalamu alaikum.